Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. Exodus chapter 5, if you have a Bible with you. We are journeying through the book of Exodus. We come to the fifth chapter today. Exodus 5. We're going to cover a whole chapter today. How about that? Everybody said amen. No guarantees on the time length it takes us to do that, but we're going we're gonna to do it. <clears throat> Exodus 5. I have a very short introduction. The book of Exodus, indeed all of Scripture that you hold in your hand, I hope you have a copy of God's Word in front of you. I hope it's real. If it's electronic, that's fine. But if you need a Bible, please take one. There's some on the table. Give it to someone if they need or if you need. The book of Exodus, indeed all of Scripture, reveals that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... That God is God who delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. This is our guiding thought throughout all of Exodus. And as we examine each text week by week, there are different thoughts to help guide us through Scripture. But the overall thought for us is that God delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. As we enter into chapter 5 with much behind us, but so much more ahead of us, we are on the edge, the, the, the heavy grammatical word that I want to use is precipice. We're on the, 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 we're ready to take a step. We're right at beginning to see God display his power in ways that have not yet been seen. God is about to begin demonstrating his power in how he will deliver his people. So you can keep that in mind. We are about to begin seeing God. You're like, man, we've seen God do a lot already. Yes, we have. But we have not yet seen how he will deliver his people. He has told Moses it will take a mighty hand to compel Pharaoh to let you go. You're going to go and lead my people out. But we don't know exactly what that means. We are on the edge now of beginning to see what that will mean. Exodus chapter 5. Would you read with me? 1 through 23. Afterward... Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, Let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw, 
Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work. Your daily task each day is when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now, no straw, go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge you, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you in this moment, thankful for an opportunity to gather around your word that you by the power of your spirit, may speak to us through the truth of your word. Father, I pray that as I speak, you would speak to me. I pray, God, that though it is my voice who is audible in this room, I pray, God, that it is your voice that is speaking to us. I pray, God, that you would calm our anxious hearts, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and minds to understand. God, that we would learn from you through your word and through the experiences of your people, the Hebrews and Moses. Father, I pray today that as your word is proclaimed, God, I pray that sinners would be humbled to repentance. I pray to salvation. I pray, God, that holiness would be promoted among your people, and I pray that Christ the Savior, the Lord of all, would be exalted. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I have two thoughts to help guide us through Exodus 5 today. If you're a note taker, you can write these down. As we journey through Exodus 5, I titled the sermon, Hard, Hard Heart, Hardship, and Forgetfulness. I like these points of three. I'm not much of a three-point preacher, but there's a three-point title. Praise the Lord. Hard Heart, Hardship, and Forgetfulness. Here's the thoughts, two thoughts, to help guide us through today's text. One, the progression from hardness of heart toward God to hardship for God's people. I'll say it again. The hardness of heart toward God to hardship for God's people. Progression between the two. Second thought. The progression from hardship for God's people to God's people forgetting God's word and God's power. The progression of hardship for God's people to forgetting God's people forgetting God's word and God's power. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, it starts and says, afterward. 
I don't like to do long backups, but if you haven't been with us or if you're maybe forgetting what we have seen as we've journeyed, I think it's extremely important that we take afterward into context and actually what is written immediately before Exodus 5 verse 1 is extremely important to today's text. So afterward, after what? After all of Israel came into Egypt, 70 persons in all and grew to be too numerous in the land, a strong people. After a new king arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph or his God or his family and began to burden them with work and treat them as slaves and treat them poorly. After Moses has rejected the house of Pharaoh and has chosen to be mistreated with the people of God rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin. After he tried to raise up and redeem his own people, deliver his own people and killed the Egyptian and fled into the desert because Pharaoh wanted him dead. After the burning bush, after all of the instruction, all of the words, all of the signs, after the voice from the midst of the flame that said, take off your sandals for the place on which you stand is holy ground, after the conversations and the doubt, who am I that I should go? I don't talk well. They won't listen to me. After signs were given to prove who God is, after he has met Moses, after, after he's met Aaron, after they've returned to the elders of Israel, the end of chapter 4, after he spoke all the words, after he showed all the signs, and would you turn your attention and look at verse 30? Mm, 31. After the people believed and after the people worshipped. This is extremely important to today's text. Afterward, most specifically, after the people heard the words of God and after they worshipped him as God for his word and the signs that he provided through Moses, afterward, okay? Afterward. Interesting here as we would begin chapter 5 to understand, after God has given them his word and shown them signs. I want you to know what the text does not say to us. Not after the people asked for a sign. Remember that God in his omniscience knew they would need a sign, so he provided that to Moses. Here is, the, here is what it will take for my people to believe my word through you. He gives them one. If they won't believe that, he gives them another, and then he gives them a third and leaves it because he knows that is what it's going to take for my people. I wanted to point out to us today that people have been and continue to seek signs that prove God is God. People want signs that there is a God, let alone when they're kind of like, I think so, but I want, I want a sign that shows me who God is. Some Pharisees came to Jesus one time, scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. They came to Christ asking for a sign. And what were they saying? We hear you, but in order for us to believe that you are who you say you are, give us a sign. They're asking for a sign. And the word of Christ to the Pharisees and the scribes, it is a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks a sign. And Christ says to them, no sign will be given it, the wicked and adulterous generation, no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Sometimes people are like, I don't know the story of Jonah. 
I just can't believe that. Well, if you believe that Christ is Christ, he talks about Jonah and says that the sign of Jonah will be the only sign given to a wicked and adulterous sign-seeking generation. So he kind of backs up the story of Jonah. Remember that the Bible is story, but it is account. It is narrative of experiences of God's people. He says, no sign will be given to a wicked and adulterous sign-seeking generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah, who, just as he was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The only sign they would be given. Jesus told in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. He tells of the rich man, Lazarus the poor man. They both die. The Bible says that Lazarus is carried by angels to the side of Abraham. We understand this to be eternity. We understand this to be the side of God, Abraham's child. They're with God. He is in comfort after a life of agony. It says that the rich man, the Bible says, lifted up his head in anguish, in flame. That's eternal judgment for the people not belonging to the Lord God, lifts up his eyes and says to Abraham, send someone back to tell my family. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. No, 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 Abraham, listen to me. If someone goes back from the dead, my family will listen. And Abraham said, no, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The sign has been given. People are asking for signs. God, God in his graciousness, gave a sign to the people of Israel, three of them actually. The sign has been given for people to see, but not the sign that people have wanted to see. Like, Pastor, this seems like it's kind of deviating from the text. Please follow closely. People want to see a sign, and how do they do it? I'll believe if, right? People may say, maybe you. People say, I'll believe if. Do this, God. Do that. How about this? How about that? Heal so-and-so. Give such-and-such. These are the signs that people are looking for, isn't it? And sometimes... God in his sovereignty and according to his infinite wisdom gives those as signs to people. Maybe you in this room. Maybe you have sought something that God graciously gave to you. The ultimate sign has been given. These are the signs that people want. Why not this? Why not that? If there is a God, why is there so much wickedness in the world? I have a great answer for that. I hope you do. If there is a God, why so much pain? Why so much sorrow? I hope you have an answer when people ask that question. God's word answers that question. It's just not in a way that people want it to be answered. This is why Isaiah lamented the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, verses 1 through 3. And this is a paraphrase. We'll call it the John White translation this morning. But Isaiah laments in Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah questioning, no one's believing what we're saying. I'm prophesying and they're like, who's believed? Who's heard? To who has the word of God come? Isaiah would say, we watched him grow up. 
prophesying. We watched him grow up like a tender shoot out of the dry ground, he says in Isaiah 53. He didn't look like a king. He wasn't attractive that we would take notice of him. In fact, he was despised. He was rejected by men. Isaiah says, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Oh, the sign necessary has been given. The necessary sign for people to believe in God has been given. Christ in Luke 24, verses 27 and 44, write that down. Luke 27, Luke 24, 27 and 44. You can hear why I get those mixed up. Luke 24, 27 and 44. Christ says, Moses and all the prophets, the Psalms, it's all about me. I am the center of God's word. Every word spoken, every phrase, every paragraph, every line that is read aloud in the synagogues, all of it. This day as you sit here and hold God's word in your hand, the central point to the entire thing is the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the point. Christ is the sign. The recorded prophecy of the coming Messiah, the eyewitness testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, and listen, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his return. The life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the sign given to a wicked and adulterous sign-seeking generation. There are people who are demanding a sign, and if you are not pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ, well, I don't know why God doesn't give us a sign. I can't answer that for No, wrong answer. Wrong answer. Please don't say that ever again. The right answer is the sign has been given. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Who do you say he is? That's what Christ asks us. Who do you say I am? Who am I to you? What is your belief? What is your profession of faith? This is why scriptures like 1 Corinthians 15, 6 are so important. Then he appeared to more than 500 at one time. This is why passages like 1 John 1, 1 through 5 are so good. That which we have heard. That which we have heard seen with our eyes that which we have touched the Lord Jesus Christ we believe and testify to him that's why they are so important it's so important to know your scripture because the sign for people to believe who God is has been revealed through God's written word here Exodus 5 Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh And with all the people having seen the signs and believed God's word, this is important, afterward, after believing the signs, after hearing God's words, all the people believing, all the people worshiping Moses and Aaron go into talk to Pharaoh. And they go in and obediently say precisely what God has told them to say. Look at verse 1. Thus says, you probably want to underline this in your Bible if you're a note taker. Thus says, the Lord, the God of Israel. This is a statement of possession. Look at, let my people go. 
that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Then again in verse 3, they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall on us with pestilence or with the sword. We discussed back in chapter 3, interesting that the law has not been given regarding the worship of God, but there is an understanding of the people, we must obey, we must worship. Please let us go. I want to deal with these two statements. Let my people go. This is a statement of possession. God is saying to Pharaoh, remember what God said of Egypt or of Israel in chapter 4? Thus you shall say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. This, the authorship of God, the Holy Spirit through Moses is telling us, dad's in the room, my firstborn, I dare you to try something. Or, Maybe you've been there. I was there as the child. Someone at school says something to baby boy, and dad's going to make that right. I wonder what you're going to do about this punk that's threatening my kid. Because I tell you, if you don't do something, I'm going to do something. How about that? Right? We all feel that. I hope we're putting it away, Christian. We need to be putting that away. It's not a good response, but that's a response, isn't it? And we see it even of God, holy and righteous in his actions. Pharaoh? Israel's my firstborn. And here, when the word of God comes through Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go, he's saying, Pharaoh, Israel is my son. I gave birth to him. He's mine. You've had him long enough. Let him go. Let my son go. In verse 3, please let us go. Look at two phrases. The God of the Hebrews first phrase, then down in the verse, that we may sacrifice, very intentional words, to the Lord, circle it, our God. This is more than a request to leave. This is confrontational to the, the large array, the, the, the big word is pantheon, the pantheon of gods, the collection of gods, the numerous gods estimated in ancient Egypt to be more than 2,000 gods, Pharaoh among them. The Lord, our God. This is confronting gods of Egypt, and this is confronting, and we see it immediately, this is confronting Pharaoh himself. Do you remember a couple weeks ago? I think it was a couple weeks ago. Maybe it was three or four at this point. I don't remember. Remember when I talked about Israel and Moses aren't so much at war with Pharaoh, but Pharaoh is at war with God. Look back. You just got to turn a page. Maybe it's even on the same page. Look what it says. End of chapter 3, the last sentence. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. That is a military wartime phrase. You're not just leaving. I'm going to make a ruin of them. Pharaoh is at war with God. Moses immediately begins to experience what God and his omniscience warned him of. You remember back in chapter 3? I know that he won't let you go. You gather the elders and say to them, then you go to Pharaoh and you say to him, but I know that he will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And that becomes revealed to us as we see this encounter between Moses and Pharaoh. Look at what happens. But Pharaoh said, verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. Now, 
Some of us may want to think, shoot, Moses just got set up with like the greatest evangelism question of the world. Who is the Lord? Let me tell you. The Lord is the greatest ever. The Lord did all of this. The Lord is God. No, no, no. This is not inquiry on the part of Pharaoh. This is not, tell me more about your Lord. Who is he? This is, excuse me, Moses, I'm God. Who spoke to you? This is mockery. Do you remember we talked not long ago in the start of our journey through Exodus about the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, the enmity that God placed between them, and we talked about various marks of the seed of the serpent, one of them being mockery back in Genesis. Here's another one. You can write it down. Defiance. Defiance toward God is a sign, a mark of the seed of the serpent. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who? Listen, Moses, there's a ton of you here. Like, I can't even count the number of people that constitute the nation of Israel at this point. I don't know why there are so many of you in my land, but though you're numerous, you're extremely insignificant to me, Moses. Listen, I rule over all of you. You're mine. You're of very little account, Moses. You and all your people. And furthermore, your God is of very little account too because if I rule over you and I've never heard of this God, he can't be that much of a God. Do you understand how Pharaoh is positioning himself as this discourse goes along? I do not know the Lord. Look it. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. First of all, he said, Who is the Lord that I should obey? I don't know this God. Of all the gods that exist, including me, I don't know who this God is. I will not obey a God I do not know. Secondly, I will not obey whoever you're saying sent you in here to say, let my people go. And then, furthermore, down at the end of verse 9, look what he says. Let heavier work be laid on them that they may labor at it, look, and pay no regard to lying words. They're not Moses' words. They're not Aaron's words that Moses gave to Aaron to speak to Pharaoh. They're God's words. Double the work. Double down on them so they don't listen to these men. They're idle. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let them go. And suddenly, the words of Exodus 1.8 kind of should come back to us a little bit. There was a Pharaoh who knew Joseph, his family, his gods. The story of how they came to Egypt, he knew all of that. Remember, Joseph said, I've heard you can interpret dreams. Nah, Pharaoh, I can't do anything. But the Lord God gives meaning of dreams. Pharaoh, what do you say? Okay, continue. Tell me your dream and I'll make known its meaning because God is able to make known its meaning. So he does. That Pharaoh knew of Joseph, his family, his God, but he died. Exodus 1.8 tells us there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Did not know his family, did not know how they came to be there, did not know his God. Moreover, that Pharaoh is now dead. So Joseph's Pharaoh is dead. We don't know how many Pharaohs there were in between there. Another Pharaoh comes up in Exodus 1.8. Then the Bible tells us that that Pharaoh wanted Moses dead for killing the Egyptian. Then in Exodus 4.19, God tells Moses, everyone who wanted your life is dead. So that Pharaoh's dead. So there's another new Pharaoh over Egypt, another new king who it's 
assumed on the part of historians that this Pharaoh may have known who Moses was previously, but maybe he didn't because Moses was gone for 40 years. Maybe this guy came to power and didn't know who he was. We don't really know, so we'll leave that alone. If the Pharaoh who rose up in Exodus 1.8 didn't know Joseph, his family, or his God, and if this is even just one more Pharaoh away, how much farther away is he from knowing Joseph and his family and his God? If the Pharaoh in Exodus 1.8 didn't know, then certainly this Pharaoh that has risen up is like, yeah, whatever. You know what's happening? You know how we have a hard time understanding the hardness of heart in people? The further you start to move away from the reality and truth of who God is, the more callous you become in your heart to that God. Christian, I hope you're listening because this isn't something that applies only to lost people in the world. Their heart's already hard. It's awaiting the hammer of God's word and the grace of God to make it soft. We do this too when we stray from the truth of God's word. But imagine Pharaoh here, no clue, thinks he is God, knows the gods that he serves in Egypt. And here he says, I don't know this God. You're of no account. Why should I be convinced that your God is anything significant? I wonder how many people relate to that thought. Listen, man, I don't really care about your God. I, I, like, who are you anyway to tell me who God is? Like, what, what makes you better than me to talk about God to me? At the same time, it will take a mighty hand to compel Pharaoh to let Israel go. Now that becomes, comes more clearly into focus now. Why will it take a hard hand? Because Pharaoh is opposed to God. Because Pharaoh is an enemy of God. Because Pharaoh, as we looked in Exodus chapter 4, because Pharaoh is, as Romans says, a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. Pharaoh is, as God's word said, he has been brought to this point in time by God for a purpose. That God's power, the riches of his glory, the renown of his name might be known in the earth and shown to vessels of mercy, his people, his firstborn. Pharaoh is God's opponent. They are at war. Pharaoh's heart is hard to God. God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And man, I wish we could just jump off the rails and talk about that. I was like, what does that look like for God to harden someone's heart? Read Romans chapter 1. What it means is for God to let go of his sovereignty in your life and to give your life over to your own heart, which is desperately, hopelessly, endlessly sick and wicked. When God removes a man, it says in Proverbs or Psalms where there is no vision, <clears throat> the people cast off restraint. When God begins to remove his hand from humanity, as he has clearly done for Pharaoh here, humanity will involuntarily harden its heart to the things of God because we need God to work in us. And here, Pharaoh's demeanor is quite visible. I don't know this God, and I will not obey. Your words, you're lying, you're taking the people away from their work. How dare you double down? If all of this wasn't enough, then we have the actions of Pharaoh to show us further the hardness of his heart toward God. And when the heart is hard towards God, the progression will move to hardship for God's people. 
His lack of regard for God's people brings a lack, a lack of regard for God brings lack of regard for God's people. Look what happens. He insinuates laziness, verse 4 and 5. He says they're idle, verse 8, verse 17. He says their work has apparently been too easy, right? Hey, boss, I could use some time off. What, am I not working you enough? Like, ouch, those were probably real words for someone in the room. I just could use a weekend. What, is it, did it work too easy? Not enough hours? Like Pharaoh's like, I mean, if you guys can go three days into the journey, I can come up with work to fill up three days' journey. Don't worry. Parents probably know this illustration even better than bosses and employees. Hey, can I watch a show? Can I go outside? Can I do this thing? Can I play with my buddies? Blah, blah, blah. Did you get your chores done? Yeah. Well, man, if you've got all this time, I can come up with plenty more for you to do. Right? I, just, I don't want to work. I, right. Pharaoh here. You're, you're lazy. The work must be too easy. He allows for them, verse 14, to be beaten. Good boss. Throughout God's word and throughout time, hardness of heart toward God has more often than not always meant hardship for God's people. Not always, but more often than not. I have these examples in the book of Judges. Israel hardens their heart to God and does not obey God's word, and God brings hardship on them in the form of nations around them, plundering them and depressing them because they were hard to obeying God. Haman, in the book of Esther, hates Mordecai, a righteous Jew. Haman's heart, hard toward God, expressed through hatred toward Mordecai, tries to kill all of the Jews in the province of the Persian king. Nebuchadnezzar, in his egomania, literally throws three Hebrew boys into a furnace heated seven times hotter than normal that consumes the guards who throw them in because his heart is so hard to God. You don't talk about hardship. I don't know what you face, but anybody throw you into a furnace of fire lately? Nebuchadnezzar, his egomania, King Herod in the New Testament, his jealousy over the prophecy of a newborn king, his jealousy causes the death of every child under two in Bethlehem. How about one that's a little closer? This one is hard for us to understand. The Jews persecuting Christians in the first century. The Jews, the people of God. And Christians, the people of God. And heavy persecution says in Acts chapter, oh gosh, seven, six, seven, eight, nine. And there broke out that day against the Christian church, a persecution so severe, and they scattered because the Jews were persecuting them so much. Not to mention the Roman occupation. All throughout history, we see hardness of heart toward God bring hardship for God's people. We are warned, however. Like, I don't want you to sit here in the year 2022 and think, oh man, that's been awful for them. Whew. Better them than me. Um, no? It's probably time that we prepare ourselves for hardship. Are you the people of God? Are you the children of God? Are you saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Someone in your life hates God, and their hardness of heart toward God is going to bring hardship for you. Maybe not to the extremes that we see here, but we should be prepared for this. We're warned by Christ throughout the Gospels of the suffering and the hardship that his people will face for his name. You'll be hated because of me. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You ever wonder, man, I'm living the same life as this guy. Why is nobody bugging him? But they're always, why does everybody hate me and my God? And are you trying to live your life through faith in Christ Jesus? Or are you just trying to live a godly life? 
Because if you're not trying to live a godly life through faith in Christ Jesus, and you're just trying to look good and sound good and act good and do good, well, then you have a little bit of a workspace faith going on there, and no one's really going to bother you. But as soon as you step out and say, I, because the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed me by his blood and his resurrection, I am saved, eternally secure because of God's grace in my life, and no one can take me from him. People are going to be like, shut your mouth. I don't want to hear you. What are you talking? No, like literally, what does the New Testament says? They stopped their ears. You've experienced this, it's likely. If you haven't, is your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life through Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Often quoted, Peter says that we are to follow in the steps of Jesus Christ. Following his steps, right? Following his steps. I don't know if we actually. We're not ready for the context of Peter saying that we are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. I'm not ready for it. The American church is wholesale not ready for it. Here's a brief overview of it, though, so we can understand what's going on in Exodus, so we can understand the progression of hardness of heart toward God to hardship for God's people. Hardship is coming, and what do we do when it comes? In 1 Peter, Peter reminds us of God's command to be holy as God is holy. Command, be holy. He reminds us that we are being built into a spiritual house on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand your life in Christ is being used for something by God? Built into a spiritual house. He reminds us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, reaching way back to the children of Israel and saying, this is you, people of God. Make the connection. He urges that we, quote, as sojourners and exiles, end quote, abstain from the desires of the flesh that war, not just against us. Somebody in here is thinking, man, this is really a, this is a war against me. Listen, the desires of your heart, Peter says, are warring against your soul. They are causing a disturbance between you and God Almighty. We are to abstain from those pleasures, those passions, those desires. Peter says that we are to be subject, uh-oh, to every human institution. Well, I think that means every human institution. Peter said the word of God comes to us, American citizen, in the year 2022, and says, submit yourselves, therefore, to every human institution. I don't like the human institution. God didn't ask if you liked it. He said submit to it because in your submitting to it and in your obedient life as my people, sojourners and exiles in this world, you declare my glory and my name. When you start throwing punches, when you start getting off track with your citizenship, you are sending glory elsewhere and God won't share it. Submit yourselves therefore to every human institution. He says that servants are to be subject to their masters. He says ones that are just and ones that are unjust. Pastor, I think that passage there in 1 Peter, it, it, yeah, I, I know what you think, but when we begin to look at the words that God brings us about the life of Christ, who had no master, just or unjust, who kept entrusting himself, then the call comes to all Christians in all places. It is gracious, Peter writes, 1 Peter 2, 19. 
It is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. This isn't fair. This isn't right. Let's think about things that cause us to suffer unjustly. And there's plenty of them. When you suffer for doing good, it is a gracious thing, Peter tells us. It is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Verse 20 goes on and says, there's no value in suffering for doing bad things. If you do bad and you suffer, you've got what you earned. But if you do good and you suffer, mindful of God, well, there's the Christian life. I mean, we overcomplicate it far too often, but there's the Christian life. Do good. Not do good and that makes you a Christian. You understand? We're not Christians because we do good. No, no, no. We do good because we are Christians. You're like, can you back that up? Yes, I can actually. Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, commandment number one, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Peter literally says that man may see your good works and glorify God, which is a direct quote and reference to the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you're the light. You're the city on a hill, the light of the world. Don't put that light under a bushel and hide it. Put that light out there for people to see it. And Christ says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your good works shine before me. Let your good shine before men that they may glorify God who is in heaven. For doing this, 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this, suffering for doing good, you have been called. When was the last time you wrote that on a mirror of fridge at home? For to this you have been called. What? This is what the verse says. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Then I'm going to help us understand it a little more. We'll return to the context of today. It's so helpful. 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you have been called... Because Jesus also suffered, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says. Did you catch the simple breakdown? For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered. What have I been called to? Suffering. Sinners and sufferers, the lot of us. Sojourners and exiles, every person redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of God. For to this, suffering for doing good, you have been called, because Christ also suffered for doing good, leaving you an example to do good, that you might follow in his steps, suffering for doing good. Your Christian life should be running up against obstacles. What in the world is going on with me? What's wrong with me? I'll tell you what's wrong with you. Nothing You're a citizen of God on high. You're a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. You're a citizen that the world finds peculiar and strange and they don't understand. And your your character, your godly life through faith in Christ Jesus, your doing good absolutely confronts the sin in man. Man, I'm not perfect. No, you're not. But when the spirit of God lives within you, the world has a problem with that. I talk about these marks of a Christian. I wonder, is this you? 
Does this sound like your life? If not, the simple refrain of the gospel comes, repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn to Christ in faith. The Hebrews here in Exodus 5 have an excellent opportunity to do good. What's the good for them? The good would be bearing up under the work that Pharaoh is imposing on them, right? Just bear up under it. Oh, it's awful. It's terrible. It's so, oh, I can't, ah, no, just shh, bear it. Yes, it's awful. Yes, it's terrible. Man, give God glory that we have the whole context of God's word and we can see in the example of the Israelites, when things are bad for us, we bear up under it. Listen, I'm not the most popular preacher in the world when I start saying that the greatest thing that could happen to the church in America would be legislation that starts to outlaw the church in America. Your context as Christians in the world does not match a single country in the world. We are so open to do this that we could have done it on the corner in downtown today. And no one would have said a thing other than, you guys have permission to be here? Do you understand? Our brothers and sisters around the world are gathering in basements. They are afraid for their lives. All of your Christian national patriotism, living in godliness, it doesn't compute to other Christians in the world. We are not citizens of America as Christians. We are blessed to live in America as Christians. We are citizens of another place, and our king is going to come for us. The Hebrews have an opportunity here. They're not citizens of Egypt. Mind you, if we're paying attention to the scripture, they're not citizens of Egypt at all. They are God's people, and they are returning to their homeland, and God is going to redeem his people. Let my people go. You're holding them captive. We are held captive. They can do good, bear up under the work. They can suffer unjustly. They can cling to the word and the promise of God. Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, they heard the words, they believed. They saw the signs, they fell, and they worshiped. They just say, man, this is... I, But God has said, and we worshiped him as God, and so now we will cling to as our God, as our hope, in this unjust suffering, we will hold to our God's word and to our God's power. But look what happens. As they're coming out from Pharaoh, verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron, interesting point, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron are clear, do you understand? They're clear on what they're supposed to do. God's going to let Israel go. We're supposed to do these things. God will let Israel go. We're not going anywhere. Go on in there and talk to him, but we know God's letting you go, so we'll wait right here. And as they come out, they meet with them and look at the response. You're right, Moses. It's going to be awful. We'll cling to God's word and we'll cling to God's power. And this is, no, 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 no. Look at what they say. The Lord look on you and judge you. You, Moses, have made us stink to Pharaoh. You, Moses, have put a sword in their hand to kill us. You, Moses, have caused them to make our burdens even worse than they were before. Get lost. The Lord judge you. They were just believing and worshiping. God for deliverance and power. And now the agent who brought them the word that they have believed, you've made us stink 
you stink. Look at the trouble. Look at the hardship. You see what's happening? The progression of hardness of heart toward hardship for God's people often leads to the progression of hardship for God's people. I want to say to forgetfulness of God's word and power. That's what I wrote down, but it's almost like it's leading to hardness of heart toward God. Hardness of heart toward God leading to hardship for God's people leading to hardness of heart toward God. Do you see that progression? I wonder if you feel it even in your own life. They blame Moses for the hardship. This has to bring back memories. Remember what happened last time? Saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, rose up, killed the Egyptian. Remember what happened? Who made you prince and judge over us? Because he tried to stop two Hebrews from fighting the next day. And that's when he's wanted for murder and he flees. Has to be bringing back for Moses like here. Here come all the doubts and questions, right? Look what Moses says. Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? You said you came to deliver them. And I've done this and now Pharaoh's doing that and it's worse for them now. You said you would deliver them. Where's the deliverance at, God? Where is the deliverance from the hand of Pharaoh? Oh, but what did God say to you, Moses? By a mighty hand. Well, I thought it was mighty enough. You know, the whole hand and the cloak and the leprosy and the whole pouring the water and it becomes blood. I thought it was pretty powerful, God. Right, right, but you're not me, are you, Moses? I'm sure you thought that was powerful when you threw down a staff and it became a snake, but you're not me, are you? It's not powerful enough for Pharaoh. Here come all the doubts, all the questions. Remember God? Remember on the mountain? Remember when I told you? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Remember? I don't talk good. Remember they won't listen to me. Well, look, I went to Pharaoh and now it's worse. Oh, man. If only the people of Israel had continued trusting the word and the power of God instead of looking at how terrible their circumstance was. God's promise will always be honored. And instead of remembering God's word and God's power to them, instead of remembering that whatever, moments ago, days ago, weeks ago, whatever, that Moses and Aaron came and threw down snakes that became a staff, threw down serp- staffs that became serpents that became staffs again, the leprosy and the unleprosy and the water on the ground, and they worshiped and believed God's word. Instead of that, you stink, Moses, get out of here. And Moses is saying, what have you done through me, God, the evil that you have brought on them? Lord willing, next Sunday we'll look at the Lord's response to Moses. Wow, is it powerful. For us today, when people meet with hardness of heart, and we will, don't worry. If you've never met with a hard heart, if you're following God, you will. People in the world, people unsaved, hate God. They may not express that. They may not overtly say to you, I hate God. But the Bible shows us that we can see by their actions, by their lives, they're opposed to God. We're praying for them to be softened by our witness. When people, when God's people, us, when we meet with hardness of heart, sometimes our own, sometimes our own hard heart, we should be mindful hardship is nearby. We should be mindful of situations. I wrote these few things down. Mindful of situations where believers and unbelievers mingle. Like, I don't, man, this hardship, what's that look like? Well, if you know a home that's unequally yoked, you've never known more hardship. Talk to a believing husband. Talk to a believing wife whose spouse is an unbeliever. Situations in marriage, situations in parenting. 
where people have raised their children to the best of their ability in the ways and admonitions of the Lord, but when they, as soon as they can, they hit that door and they're running for the world. And there is the tension of parents loving the Lord and loving their children and watching the hard heart of their child resist God. Mindful of situations where believers and unbelievers mingle like at work. Man, you, 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 I hope you have friendships. I hope you have relationships. But if you're a believer in the workplace, it's likely that many people you work with are not, right? We always like to think that there are plenty of Christians out there in the world, but the Bible tells us that narrow is the road and few are they that are on it that lead to eternal life. And wide is the road and broad is the path that leads to destruction and many are they that are on it. So it's safe, Christian, for us to assume that wherever we go, we're severely outnumbered. And it's safe to assume that wherever we go, God has people that he would save through our testimony and our witness of who he is, because that's what God does. As we proclaim the gospel, he saves. But it's safe to assume that many people in our presence will not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are living with a hard heart to God. We are not the judge of that. But it becomes evident as we live our lives with people. Mindful of situations where believers and unbelievers mingle. The contrast of our redeemed life should be confronting the unredeemed life. And when that happens, there's hardship. You talk to a wife who has wept for her husband and he just won't believe. You talk to a parent that has pled and wept for their child and they just won't believe. You talk to a person who has labored for years after years upon years for the salvation of their coworkers and they just won't believe. That's hardship. You're bearing a hardship in that moment, not to mention the mistreatment that comes with the ridicule, the being treated poorly. You know what? Hey, you know what? You're just not doing that great of a job, so we're going to let you go. Like, why am I being fired? I don't have any idea, but we've just decided because your redeemed life is confronting their unredeemed life. Hardship. We're just not looking for it anymore. We're not understanding what God's word says to us. Be mindful of those situations. Be mindful also of situations that cause us to harden our own heart. This is not just be mindful of people with hard hearts outside of us. This is be mindful to our own heart. The people of Israel believed and they worshiped and by the end of chapter 5, their hearts are hardening to the promise and word of God. Bringing hardship on ourselves. Times when things don't go the way you want them to. Times when your plans are interrupted by God's plan and you get hard in your heart over that. Where are you, God? Where are you, God? You, you, where are you? And you start asking that like you're in danger. We need to be very very careful in those moments. A hardening is near if you're not careful with those types of questions. Be mindful of the hardness of your own heart. Why? Because just as the hardness of others' hearts will cause hardships for God's people, the hardness of heart in you will cause hardship around you. As your heart becomes hard, you're causing hardship around you. Two thoughts. When hardship comes, and it will, You'll experience hardness of heart, maybe your own. And when you experience hardness of heart, hardship will follow. We must cling to God's word and God's power. I have these two thoughts. One, if yours is the hard heart, maybe you're here today. And maybe there's a bit of a thumping as the word of God, like a hammer, like a chisel, like fire, confronts you. Repent 
Acts chapter 3, verse 20 says, Repent and turn to the Lord that times of refreshing may come, that the heart may be softened. If it's someone else's hard heart, God's word is full of promises to you. Are you here today confronting someone else's hard heart in your life and you're wondering it's causing hardship and you're not sure how to bear under it? Listen to these promises from God. Hebrews 13, he will never leave us, he will never forsake us. Okay, you can just stop with that one. The promises of God to Christians experiencing hardship. All of his promises are yes and amen, 2 Corinthians 1.20. James 1, 2, and 3, count it all joy when you face various trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. May we live tenderly to God's word that our heart may not become hardened, mindful of God when suffering and hardship comes upon us. May hardship never lead us, but cause us to cling to the promise of God and the word of God. I wrote this down. As we see Pharaoh's hard heart toward God lead to hardship for God's people, and it's hard, and it's about to get harder. And as hardship for God's people leads them to forget God's word and God's power, we can look to, we can endure, we can find help when we look to our king who has said, in the world you'll have hardship. But our king has said, take heart. I have overcome the world. I want to pray and we'll receive the Lord's Supper today. God, I come before you humbly, Father, asking, Father, soften our hearts. It is often that we would look around and see hardness of heart in other people, but oh, Father, I pray in this moment, would you soften our own heart to the movement of your spirit that we may not have a hard heart toward you. God, I pray that as hardness of heart is experienced by us and as hardship is likely nearby, oh, Father, help us to cling to your grace, your mercy, your truth, your power. You've given us a sign that we have not asked for, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope. We cast all of our anxiety, our burdens to him. Father, and as we experience hardship, may we never forget your power, your word. May we cling to you. Father, and as we endure hardship as good servants, as good soldiers, your word says, Father, I pray that it would lead to gospel conversation. How are you so peaceful experiencing this? Oh, because my hope is not in anything in this world. My hope is not in this going differently. My hope is eternal. Oh, Father, help us to be prepared with your word to answer. God, as we enter a moment to observe the Lord's Supper, I pray that we would be very mindful of the hardship faced by our Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who gave all in the face of so little that we have done, so little that we have given. We have not given our lives to the point of shedding our blood. But in this moment, as we come to the Lord's table to worship you, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are mindful of the hardship that you faced, that you endured, the persecution, brutal, the ripping of flesh, the crushing of bone for our sin that we might be free 
that we would be reconciled through faith in that work, your death, your burial, your resurrection, reconciled to a holy God. Father, you are good. And in this, that we are mindful of a terrible moment in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are also mindful of the great hope that is represented here. Father, be with us as we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.